Tonight's reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two rich men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. The word of the Lord. When we last left David a couple of weeks ago, um, he was bored, he was visionless, he was sedentary, we speculated that he was uh, in the dead waters of a midlife crisis, and he has made shipwreck of his life. Not only has he committed adultery, he has covered it up. Not only has he covered it up, he has led to the death of several good soldiers. But not only that, perhaps the most disturbing part of the whole story is how hard David's heart becomes. And if you remember from 2 Samuel 11, after this horrible sin and all this cover-up, he is so callous that he can say to Joab, his commander, it doesn't really matter. War just takes who it will take. And chapter 11 ends with, this did not please the Lord. Chapter 12 picks up where we left off and gives us uh, some insights into how God deals with us when our hearts grow hard. When our conscience grows cold, when the part of our life that is open and receptive to the things of God just kind of calcifies and shuts down. Now, at one level, this is a story about a spectacular sinner uh, who, who has a tremendous fall from grace. It's the thing of Greek tragedy. But at another level, this is a story about all of us, and that's why it's in the Bible. Because any of us can get to a point in our life where our hearts grow cold. Jesus tells a story about this. Um, He talks about a farmer going out and sowing the seed, sowing four different kinds of seed, And uh, if you remember the story, sometimes it's called the parable of the soils. Uh, They all fall on different grounds. And at the end of the day, of the four kinds of seed, only one seed is still bearing fruit years later. All the others go by the wayside. Some of them are falling rocky soil, he says. Some of them, the evil one takes it away. Some spring up and then the cares of life choke it out. 
It's, it's really a, a rather disturbing parable. You don't want to push parables too far and kind of pull percentages out of them, but the percentages aren't good in this one. One out of four, that part over there grows, and you all don't. Jesus said it, I did. So I, I think one of the things that we do when we read a story like David is, is we realize that at one level, you know, this, this spiritual growth thing is challenging and risky, and, and if I'm not careful, my heart can deaden too. Because David's real sin isn't just the, the, the sexual acting out, as bad as that is. He has done what St. Augustine called, he, his heart has curved in on itself. And that's something that we all do. He's believed that he's his own God, that no one knows what's happening, that he's autonomous, that there are no consequences. And so this is a story about what God does when our hearts harden. On one level, it's a morality tale. At one level, it's a warning. But it's also a love story. This is not a Greek tragedy where the gods of Olympia wipe their hands and watch the protagonist stumble into his fateful destiny. No, 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 no. This isn't that kind of a story at all. This is a story about a god who goes after a murderer and an adulterer to bring him back. This is the Old Testament version, in a way, of the parable of the prodigal son. This is a story about how far God goes after you to bring you back. And maybe one or two of you are here tonight, and you're wondering, I wonder if I can ever go back. I've kind of gone so far down this trail right now, I, I don't even know if I can get back. This is a story about getting back. So, as we just read, as Phil read for us, God sends Nathan the prophet. If you read carefully the story of David and Bathsheba, the verb send is used like seven times. David's doing all the sending. When he's sending, he's the sender. He sends Joab, he sends a messenger, he sends for Bathsheba, he sends for Bathsheba's husband. David is in charge. He sends, he sends, he sends. And then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And we realize that something has shifted. David is not the sender. God is. And he sends a prophet to David to confront him. But the interesting thing about this is that this prophet doesn't confront him in the traditional way. He doesn't say, King, I've heard you've done this. King, I've seen you do this. Uh, King, the rumors are saying that you did this. He doesn't do that. He tells a story. Which I, th I think is significant at a couple of levels. One level is, is because it suggests that Nathan knew David so well that he knew how to share a hard truth with him. Because sometimes a direct approach isn't always work, right? Sometimes just going face-to-face -face with someone and saying, hey, I saw that you did this, it's wrong, stop it. Sometimes that 
work. Sometimes it doesn't. In the Old Testament, a lot of times when prophets try that approach with kings, they are killed. So Nathan tells a story uh, to awaken the sleeping conscious of the king. Um, Rob Stillman, one of our family here who teaches Shakespeare over at UT, told me that this story of Nathan telling a story to the king to awaken his conscience was one of the pieces of, of one of the, the truths, one of the literature that Shakespeare drew upon for the play Hamlet. And in, in Hamlet, King Claudius is guilty of murder and adultery. He's in denial of it. He won't admit it. Hamlet is trying to figure out a way to convict the king. Nothing he tries works. And then he decides to bring in an acting troupe and perform a play before King Claudius in which the main character of the play does the same sin that Claudius did. And at the moment that Claudius sees the play, Claudius runs from the room convicted of his guilt. And Hamlet says, the play's the thing to catch the conscience of the king. And one of the reasons why, according to Rob, that this story was so powerful in the Renaissance and in the writers in Shakespeare's day is they, they were intrigued by this idea that one of the ways to awaken a conscience, one of the ways to convict a person, one of the ways to get them to become aware of something they're blind to is not the direct approach, but through art, through poetry, through story, through drama, through painting. It's an interesting little tale that he tells, kind of an odd one about a guy who's got kind of a weird relationship with a lamb. Uh, I mean, isn't it kind of a funky story? You know, you'd think he'd tell a story about, you know, adultery or something like that, but he tells a story about this guy who really loves his little lamb and takes it home with him and pets him, and, you know, it's like a little puppy. And, and then when uh, a traveler needs some hospitality, the rich man goes and gets the guy's little pet and serves him for lunch. So it's a story about an abuse of hospitality. It's a story about abuse of power. It's a story about greed. Could it be that one of the things Nathan is doing is painting the sin of adultery in a different light? That it's more than just lust. It's about the abuse of power, the abuse of hospitality, about greed. Well, either way, David just goes berserk. He's very angry, very judgmental about the rich man in the story. And isn't it interesting how often we can be so upset and angry and critical about the very sins that are in our own heart that we don't see? That is a staggering psychological dynamic. And you might, you might even ask yourself the next time you are just incensed by something someone is doing, some political figure, some 
person in your school, when you are just enraged and you can't let it go and it makes you so mad and why can't they see it? And, and it very well may be your own sin that's bothering you. And you're just seeing it in this other person. Well, Nathan has the courage to confront him. He questions David. He describes his guilt. And then in verses 7 all the way down um, through 12, he talks about how God has blessed David, how God is going to ultimately discipline David. He says, you've struck down Uriah with the sword. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I will raise up evil against you, says the Lord, out of your own house. I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he'll so lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. I'll do this before all Israel and before the sun. Hard stuff, and if you know your Old Testament at all, it all happens. Absalom's son, I mean Absalom, his son, turns against him violently and as a way to shame his father, has sex with his father's wives on the rooftop. This whole plot comes true and violence haunts David's line all the way till Christ. There are consequences for sin. Violence does beget Violence, betrayal begets betrayal. But then, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You ever wonder what the difference was between Saul and David? King Saul loses everything, goes mad, forfeits the kingdom. God turns his back on him for two reasons. He'd offered a sacrifice too early, and he failed to fully plunder the Amalekites. David has adultery and murders people, and God forgives him. Do you ever wonder what the difference is? I think it's verse 13, which is expounded upon in Psalm 51, which we prayed tonight. You never hear Saul say, I have sinned. I am wrong. You hear Saul say, well, you know, you don't understand, or people were yelling at me, or I didn't, I didn't realize it, you know. It was, I was under a lot of pressure. I was under a lot of stress. You hear Saul give a lot of explanation. David says, I'm wrong. I've sinned. You know, that's all God needs. He is so ready to take us back. He is so ready for us to be restored to him. No matter how far down the trail we've gone, no matter how hard our heart has gotten, Three words, I have sinned, fresh start, fresh start. He's desperate 
to be in fellowship with us. It's the passion of his heart. And again, I, I know maybe one or two of us are in some horrible place tonight, and this story is exactly what you're dealing with and all of that. I suspect most of us it's something much subtler. Maybe it's a little cynicism. Maybe it's just kind of a chastened hopelessness. Maybe it's a bitterness, a refusal to forgive. Something you don't see too much on the outside, but you know it's there. David says, I've sinned. And Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. Here's where I want to end tonight. I want to look at the rest of this story as a picture of what it really means to turn from sin. Because we can just say, I am so sorry. We can even have emotions about that. But turning from sin means turning away from a destructive life and turning towards the life-giving life we find in God. I mean, doesn't it bother you? Do you have a friend or a relative that is always very sorry about how much they hurt you? But they never change. Oh, they're quick to weep over it. But there's no change. Well, what does that change look like when we start to turn from our sin? Well, the first thing that happens for David, and, and I, this is sort of an odd part of the story, God sentences him in, in a painful way and saying, look, here's what's going to happen. Your son's going to die. And David, the first thing David does is get on his knees for seven days and fast and pray that he won't. David fasted, went in, lay all night on the ground. It's probably before the Ark of the Covenant. The elders of his house stood by him. He wouldn't get up. He wouldn't eat. And on the seventh day, the child died. You know, one, one of the symptoms that your heart is awakening from the slumber of sin is an awakened desire to pray. And I would also say that one of the symptoms that your heart might not be real healthy tonight spiritually is having no desire for prayer. Because what's happening is, is David is moving back into relationship with God, and this is kind of an odd prayer request. David, I sentence your son to die because of your sin. Oh God, save my son. Well, it's only odd if you don't understand the nature of prayer. The nature of prayer, the nature of David's spirituality is a glorious wrestling match in, with a God who, the Bible says, changes his mind when we intercede. One of the signs that your heart is thawing 
is the desire to pray. Well, the child does die. It says, Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. And then he went to his own house. The second indicator, the second characteristic that something is happening in your soul in which you are waking back up to God is that you go to the house of God and worship. You begin to have a desire to worship God. You have a hunger for the sacrament. You have a hunger to sing the praises of God. You have a hunger to be with the people of God in praise and in worship. And I would say the contrary is also true. If you have, and I I know there's a lot of ways we can worship. I'm not talking about style or even place. But you know what I mean. An environment where you're worshiping and punching uh, Bethel Pandora on while you're driving to work is not exactly the same thing. One of the signs that your heart is sick is that you have no desire for worship. That's one of the signs. Well, after he worships, he does something again that strikes us as a little strange. That this, He gets up. He goes to his house. When the servants asked, they set food before him. He eats. And they said, what are you doing? You fasted and wept for your child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the God will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him. He won't return to me. Odd way to deal with grief. I don't know all the reasons why. But something in it makes perfect sense to me, and it's this. David accepts the gift of his forgiveness and moves on with his life. That's one of the signs that you've truly encountered God with grace and forgiveness and humility and repentance is that you are ready to move on with your life. You don't wallow in shame. You don't beat yourself up. You don't stay stuck. You move on with your life. Then our little tale ends. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon, which means peace from Shalom. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. The story continues. The kingdom advances. The great-grandfather of Jesus, great-great-great-great, is born. To an adulterer, to a murderer, whose heart had become entirely shut off from God. There's hope for us, my friends. No matter where you are tonight, no matter how hard your heart has gotten, no matter what you've done, Three words, I have sinned, and the story starts all over again. Let's pray.